Hey everybody, welcome to Geeky Dads. Talk about geeky things. I'm JJ Johnson and joining me back on the show today is Andrew Swearigen. Andrew, welcome to the show, man. Hey JJ, good to talk to you again. All right, Andrew. I got I got I got I got a bone to pick with you and I I haven't told Oh boy. All right. Did you know I have a podcast rival? I I I am aware that you have a podcast rival. Yes. Uh, okay, you're aware of this. Have I'm you aware. Aired on my podcast rival show before um if, if it's the rival i'm thinking of then then yes i do believe okay okay yeah we're gonna chat about that yeah okay all right yeah folks if you haven't listened to the episode with me and clint hall who is the host of the experience conversations with creatives last week that show aired and we talked about 1986 transformers or as i like to say the great massacre of 1986. Have you seen that movie, man? I actually have not. That is one of my, one of my gap movies. I was, uh, I was actually thinking about that as I was getting ready for this podcast, the, the number of movies that I, I haven't seen throughout the eighties that these conversations have made me kind of br not, not brush up on. There's nothing to brush. It's just, I need to get up on it and actually watch some of these. So uh, unfortunately that is one of those movies I've not seen. Well, you need to check it out. Check it out. All right, folks, this episode is being brought to you by Wiccan Sarcasm Candles. Uh, for all you dads and want to go out and buy your wife a nice gift, these candles are perfect. And they have summer scents out, and they have baseball scents. I am a huge baseball fan. I'm a New York Yankees fan, so I love anything when it comes to baseball. So go check them out. Use the promo code GeekyDads at checkout, and you'll get a discount. All right, so Andrew, right out of the gate, man, I got to tell you, Congratulations. You are now a Realm Award finalist. Congratulations, dude. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, as we're recording this, we uh we found out uh, I believe it was last Sunday was when I saw the the results come out and I uh, honestly I had I have this like internal clock in my head of like okay, if I haven't heard anything about uh say a job application or a story I've submitted I tend to assume that I, I assume the opposite of the old adage. I assume, well, you know, no news probably means that bad news is coming. Um, and so I saw that the, the nominate, the finalists were out and I'm like, okay, well here, let's find out. Let's find out. And, and of course my category short audio fiction was near the bottom. And so I had to like scroll all the way down and there was a feeling of shock of seeing, you know, my name there along with uh, Emily Grant's name, who was nominated for her story, um, oh, of course I'm not, of course I didn't have it written down, but, um, I will look it up later on so I can actually give her the proper credit. Cause I've listened to her story and it's really great. Emily Grant story, uh, and then Brian Augustin's story that is also nominated. So, um, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna let you get away scot-free here because you are also a realm award finalist. Congratulations, JJ. Oh, thank you very much. Like you said, it was kind of a shock, you know, all three of the Iggy and Oz books have now been finalists for the Realm Award. So, you know, I'm happy. It's always good to feel, you know, see people recognize it. But um, it's it's still kind of a shock that people you think people actually enjoy your work. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So. Well, here, here, let me let me because I pulled it up on my Instagram story. So Emily Grant's story, which is available on the Havoc Havoc Story podcast is at all costs. Um, and then Brian Augustin's story is of bitter souls available on the untold podcast. Uh, and then mine is called cold fury. Also a havoc story podcast. All those are free to listen to So 
um, you know, whether you're a, a, a one who follows the realm awards or not, you know, give those a free listen. I, I think you'll enjoy it. And, uh, absolutely. If you want to learn more about JJ's books buy JJ's books, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Hop on it. <laughs> I appreciate it. And we'll leave a link in the show notes for that episode and where you can go to find out more about havoc. You know what? I need to get him on the show. Mr. Winch. Oh, oh Andrew Winch. Yeah. Yeah. I need to get him on the show. Just come on. <laughs> Talk about, you know, short fiction and havoc and everything like that. I'm going to make that a mission. So if anybody knows Andrew Winch, tell him to come listen to this episode and then get in touch with me somehow. Or, you know, I'll get in touch with him. All right. So, man, we're continuing. Uh, we're taking the tinfoil hat off this, this episode. <laughs> Did you know that was one of my top rated episodes? No. What? <laughs> the- <laughs> I, it, I, I feel like I'm breaking a, l- a little bit of kayfabe here by like acknowledging that, the, you know, the, the parody that existed in that episode. But, uh, you no, know, I had no idea that that had gotten so I had much comments and messages on that episode than any episode I've ever done. People absolutely loved it. And it has become it's not the top listened episode. Number one is still the, is still the top listened episode. Uh, with Steve Raza, but it is it is now in the top five that episode. I uh, I'm blown away. <laughs> uh, I I you know I I I got real nothing to say on on it other than just wow, and that's 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 hilarious to me that you know we we put all these thoughts into these lists and yet you know it's it's the silly chicanery of of the the Tommy Westfall theorem that. <laughs> <laughs> that really gets people's attention. Yeah, I, I, I'm blown away. People love that episode. So I don't know, folks. We might pin to put the tinfoil hat back on sometime. But tonight we are continuing our series in the 1980s movies. We've done 82. We've done 83. We've done 84. And tonight it is 1985. And Andrew, this was an incredible year, dude. The oh man, I mean, we 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 say it every every time, right? Like oh, like but like. And it's funny because the when I put my list together, I thought like, okay, you've got your hallmarks here. And the more I went down the list, um, it, it was, it was, it, each year is different, right? You know, with, and this one, you know, previous years, it was like, man, there's so many good, there's so many classics we have to leave off the list. Yeah. And here it was, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying like bad things about some of the movies that are on our honorable mentions, but there's a lot of like, maybe they wouldn't be like cultural touchstones, but there was a lot of like great, you know, movies that you would have, you know, someday just like looked at in the VHS rental store and thought, Oh, I'll give this a shot. And then you pull out a movie like cocoon and you're (laughs) like, Whoa, what is this? Like this movie's kind of weird, but I kind of, I kind of really dig it, you know, something like that. Or um, I'm trying to go off the top of my head here, but like, I know, like, I mean, um, you know, First Blood Part Two, the second Rambo film, is is yeah. is again again and you know these are honorable mentions we're talking about. There's just a lot of like really solid. There's a really solid crop of films here, and even if they don't necessarily have uh, the the cultural legacy broadly of some of these other movies we have, you know they are certainly a classic to somebody, and that's really cool to see. Yeah. Now let's just go over some of the because the way we do this, folks, is we do a draft. So I had the number one pick. So I picked my movie. 
my number one, and Andrew picked his, and then I picked number two. And once it was taken off the list, so some of Andrew's would probably be in my top five, and some of mine would probably be in Andrew's top five, but we're getting the what we feel is the best ten. Now, there's some movies we left off here, and folks, some of you are going to turn, turn the show off as soon as we mention this. Uh, Teen Wolf didn't make our list. Um, the Explorers. Did you ever see that, The Explorers? I haven't. That's that's one of those that I I had on my list of like movies I need to watch from this era, and unfortunately, I, I didn't get to that in in the the uh, prelude process of this. Yeah. So Commando also wasn't on our list. Saint Elmo's Fire, <laughs> Weird Science, which I can't believe neither one of us got that. You already <laughs> Rambo First Blood Part Two, Spies Like Us, Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, Jewel of the Nile. Uh, is there any others I'm missing that we? left off yeah i mean i yeah like i said i said cocoon um enemy mine another one of those like just just solid fun movies that like you know like i feel like if it's one of those things like if you've seen it you it really stays in your memory and you're like yeah that's a it's like a really really good episode of star trek that is with with dennis quaid and lou gossett jr not on the list not on the list and then Another one that I should see, but I haven't seen, but I know of its legacy is Brazil. Terry Gilliam. Apparently it's a wild movie. A, a tin hat. Andrew would apparently appreciate this movie quite a bit. <laughs> so, oh man. All right. Well, let's get into this. Let's start. We're going to start with number five and go down to number four. Would you like to kick us off with your number five? I will, I will gleefully kick us off here. All right. So, uh, my number five is actually a number four. It is Rocky four. Um, this is one of those movies that I feel like people either feel like you either get, or you, you either really, really get it, or it just kind of falls flat. I feel like there is not, I don't think I've met very many people with a, a, like a middling opinion of Rocky four. Um, and it's, it is, in many ways a strong departure from the previous rocky movies like you know especially like how it starts you know smaller scale much more uh you know like a personal portrait of the first rocky and then it grows from there here it is uh, you know and in the way that a series of films you know it has to grow it has to develop it has to become something uh has to become something new and greater um this changes the formula a, a, a little bit and it, it what it really does is it you know it dials everything up to 11 right the training montages are dialed up the melodrama is dialed up i don't mean melodrama like negatively it's just i think it's an accurate descriptor of it right there the the things are painted much more broadly the emotion is heightened the the song choice the the like the music soundtrack of this movie is dialed to the i mean you brought in james brown like you're not gonna you know that's dialing things up maximally um and you know that's actually a term i've heard used before is maximalist filmmaking i think we're all aware of like what minimalist filmmaking and this is like no we are not going for subtlety here we are going for you know, we've we've seen Rocky fight Apollo twice. We've seen him fight Clubber Lang. We saw him fight Hulk Hogan in there. Now let's see Rocky fight the Soviet Union. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. And you know, for me, I can't I can't not like this movie. I understand it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I mean, for me, the Rocky movies in general, and this one specifically, you know, it 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 hits a period of time when I was starting to 
be old enough to watch movies with my siblings. There's a pretty decent age gap between my siblings and I, and my brother loved Rocky when he was in high school. And so he would like listen to the Rocky soundtrack while we were driving into school in the mornings, he'd watch the movies. And I, and there was a point where I started to get it and it was like, Oh, okay. Okay. You know, it was maybe like 12, 13 and maybe old enough to actually sit down and watch one of these things all the way through. And that's when I just fell in love with it. And so it's, it's so dialed in with that you know it's so interconnected with my upbringing and my early adolescence uh and i really do think the movie works i you know it pulls on a lot of the you know on a lot of the themes and a lot of the relationships you've seen building throughout these you have a great villain with ivan drago um you know you 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 play with all of these people who have played these characters for a long time like like apollo creed like adrian like rocky um, and it just, it does a lot of really cool stuff with it. And I mean, if for nothing else, the training montage of Rocky running up a mountain and screaming Drago at the top of his lungs, I mean, that's spectacular. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Great movie. I will, I will never not love that movie. Yeah. I think this one came out obviously in 1985. We're at the, the height of the cold war. Um, so there's a lot of cold war type themes in this story. Um, but like you said, the structure changes a little bit. It's no longer about, you know, Rocky overcoming a champion like Clubber Lang or something like that or Apollo Creed because Apollo Creed, you know, is killed within the first act. I mean, that is the that's the inciting incident right there. And which is cool because it sets up, you know, the new Creed movies, which I absolutely love. Oh yeah, yeah, I love those. And you know, Ivan Ivan, you know, Drago, I mean, played by uh, Hans Dolph, I'm going to butcher his last name, Ludgren. He also played He-Man in Masters of the Universe <laughs> a couple years later, which, mm -hmm. you know, for, for what it was, it was an okay film. But I mean, <laughs> it, it had some problems, man. <laughs> but he was also um, in Arrow. He was the Brothba leader in Arrow, season four or five, I can't remember. Oh, uh, Okay. Yeah, he was the uh, he was the Brafa leader in season four, I think it was, of Arrow. So he he's done some great acting, but I mean, like you said, the training montage alone, and you know, I, I get up and go run, you know, pretty much every morning. I've listened to Rocky for a while, I've run, man. I mean, it motivates you to get up that hill. But this movie, they actually were engaging in authentic punching during this movie, and. He hit him, hit Sylvester Stallone so hard that he ended up in intensive care at one point, and they had to stop shooting. I do believe that this is Sylvester Stallone's last movie he directed until like 2006 when he directed Rocky Balboa, uh, which mm -hmm. the new one that came out many, many years later. So um, I don't think Stallone directed again until that point so he took a like a 20-year hiatus on on directing but this is it's a great movie and like you said i i was debating on putting this at number five for me it was it was polly's robot that just kind of said okay i i can't do this <laughs> you know i love the movie polly's robot needed to be cut out of that movie all the way around it's still but here's the deal about polly's robot that makes it so 80s totally right there oh yeah yeah i mean it's it's it is one of those things you know as you're talking about like how a franchise morphs and evolves you know they have to try new things and 
sometimes those those new big swings work and you get some really interesting results and sometimes you get polly's robot and it is what it is yeah but i think it is it is an excellent cold war film and uh i think it sets up creed 2 perfectly oh my oh man i in such a way and I, I you know i loved creed 1 but creed 2 is without question my favorite one yeah yeah i i haven't seen the third one yet but i would agree i i I really enjoyed i really really loved the first creed movie um we're we're just gonna end up talking rocky movies here the whole time but but creed 2 really i mean and you know and again and it carries over the emotion from from this movie and that that last fight the way that you are seeing it from all the points of view you're seeing it from 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 adonis's standpoint you're seeing it from rocky's point of view you're seeing it from you know from the the father and son dragos and and it's there is so much emotion packed into that and that's the sort of thing you can do when you know it, it, that is a legacy sequel done well i think when you can pull these characters back and like really get some rich texture out of that so and, and, yeah yeah so all right man well we, we've we've talked enough about mine what is your number five all right my number five is i gotta go horror you know me i <laughs> love 80s horror man and i the reason there's two reasons i put this on my list and neither one of them really have much to do with the story but i i was a, as a kid growing up i read horror i was a big fan of fangoria magazine i would have to actually sneak it uh, you know, buy it, you know, because, you know, my mom went, you know, buy it for me and because it was all the special effects makeup. And I remember being in the video store one day. And if you're watching on YouTube, I'm totally going to put this up on. I came across the film that had this cover right there. This is Fright Night. Folks, these vampires do not sparkle. All right. Let's, <laughs> you know, I, I saw that cover with that vampire, kind of the the smoke of the vampire image above the house, and I absolutely fell in love with it. This is a very simple premise. You have a kid, basically, you know, his name's Charlie, and he lives, he's obsessed with vampires, and he watches this vampire-type movie show with this guy named Peter Vincent, which is uh, played by, oh, I got the notes right here. Is, Is it Vincent Price? It's based off of Vincent Price. Okay. Yeah. The guy's name is in the show is Peter Vincent is played by Rodney McDowell. And um, so he's obsessed with vampires and he finds out that his neighbor is basically a vampire. All right. And, you know, but here's the reason I love this show. It's a very simple premise. You know, vampire lives next door. That's that's it. But what I love about this film is is just the practical effects of what this film does. If you want to know what it was like uh, to grow up in the 80s and watch films where they did not have CGI at that point, uh, which is why the moon landing probably was not faked. But I just lost half my listeners. <laughs> all your all your followers with tinfoil hats. Just like, yeah, yeah, t- yeah. Tin Hat Andrew just checked out completely. <laughs> but the practical effects on this film were so incredible. In fact, the 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 artists that did this. Um, his name was, uh, Richard, oh, Edlin, Edlin, something like that. Anyway, these are the list of films that he worked on. I made a list. All right. The guy had won two Oscars. He worked on all the Star Wars films, 
Indiana Jones, the original Battlestar Galactica, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is what actually got him this job. Uh, obviously, uh, Hunt for October, Poltergeist, Die Hard, Outbreak, just all sorts of things. But I remember watching a documentary on this show because I, I, I like I said, I'm a big fan of, of 80s horror. So I'll watch like, you know, how, how they were made. They were using these contact lenses, these hard plastic contact lenses, and they were they, they were painting them and then putting glitter on these contact lenses. And then the characters, the actors would put them in their eyes and they could only have them in for 20 minutes. Otherwise, their eyes would just start getting so irritated they couldn't finish the scene. One guy actually tripped down the stairs. Uh, they had a lot of accidents while shooting this film. But, I mean... It was little things like that because when you watch this film and you watch the character's eyes, especially as a vampire or the wolves, it, it's amazing how they do it. And you're sitting here going, what, how, how are they doing this without CGI? And then you find out and you're just blown away. Um, it took them over eight hours just to prepare the makeup for uh, the transformation uh, to the vampire for the main character, uh, which was played by Susan Sarandon's. Oh, her ex-husband, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. and Prince Humperdinck himself, indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then there was, a, there, was a, there was a wolf one, Evil Ed, the wolf transformation. It took him over 18 hours to prep the makeup for that scene. And when I, when I read things like this, especially about the 80s war, you know, because you always hear stories about how long it took them to get Robert England ready for uh you know the freddy scenes and stuff like that i it makes me respect the filmmakers of the 80s and how committed and how devoted they were so when i look at fright night i don't look at it mainly for uh it's one of the greatest movies of 1985 it, it is a great vampire story it's one of the best classic 80s vampire stories out there but when you hear all the time they put in to make this film what it was you have to respect it as just a creative artist in my opinion so yeah i gotta go with fright night man yeah yeah no well and you know i've already i've already name checked uh, uh chris sarandon um who was who plays the main vampire in this which that threw me off because uh, you know up there with movies that i saw just growing up that are just intrinsically connected with my childhood is the princess bride uh, because oh. Yeah, as it as it should be with any with any with everybody. Um, and to see, I mean, he's he's all he's not likable in the Princess Bride. It's not like it was, you know, not be like seeing like Mark Hamill or someone who you have like as a as an icon of goodness playing this. But just seeing someone who like because I I don't I don't really know him from much else other than other than the princess bride and seeing him in that scene, just the, the entire scene and how creepy and unsettling he is it it added to the creep factor for me and i was in like my mid-20s or so the first time i saw this so it wasn't like oh i'm a kid and it's like no i'm i'm a grown adult and i'm still i i i have very odd feelings about about watching this right now but but yeah no i remember i remember that i remember the i mean i remember just the the buckets and buckets of of blood and gore and green stuff and other stuff that just flowing across this and it just absolutely one of those things you're just like okay this is this kind of movie and and again not in a bad way just like 
yeah, you absolutely have to be, uh, you know, have to respect the dedication to the special effects in a sequence like that. And yeah. I was actually, uh, all right, so I'm going somewhere with this, but I was listening to a podcast this week that was talking about the Muppets and how they seem more real to, you know, when they're done well to a viewer than, you know, even CGI stuff that may look better or something like that. And there is something about seeing these things in a real life environment uh, and whether that's the prosthetic makeup and, you know, being, you know, having an actor behind it who can make decisions in the moment and, you know, and having an actor who can still act with all that goop on his face, you know, you, you know, it, one of the things they would always look for in shows like Star Trek where they have actors with lots of prosthetics is how can you still emote with, you know, an inch of, you know, nylon foam on your face and fake teeth in and stuff like that. And, but when you can get someone who can do it, it is very effective as it is very effective in this movie. So yeah. Yeah. There was uh there was one scene and then we'll get onto your number four. There's one scene where they were putting this uh, chemical compound in this guy's mouth in order to create saliva. And just so he would be drooling and things like that. Well, the actor, his name was Jeff Jeffrey. I'm drawing a blank on, on his full name, but he, uh, he started complaining about the taste and how his mouth was getting sticky. And then they realized <laughs> that they weren't putting the right chemical compound in. They were actually putting prosthetic adhesive and it was gluing his mouth shut. <laughs> so they had to pause the filming. Get all the medical attention to this, get it all out of there, clean him out, wash his mouth out, and then start the scene all over again. And he just kept going like, hey, I just got my glued, mouth glued shut. I'm like, there is no way in the world this would happen in Hollywood today. <laughs> <Just like> no. <laughs> yeah. Credit where credit is due. The upside of doing things with computer is that yes, you don't accidentally uh, show, uh, you know, glue an actor's mouth shut. I feel like, I feel like the Screen Actors Guild might have some uh, some unkind opinions about uh, such practices. <laughs> uh, all right, man, let's get on to your number four. All right, well, we will go from one practical effects feast to another. Uh, my number four is a, a movie that I, I well. I, I'll just, I will say what it is and then I will start talking about it. My number four is legend. Um, this is a, a Ridley Scott uh, directed film. Um, Tom Cruise is in it. Mia Sarah is in it. And, you know, this is a movie that I grew up just thinking like, Oh, everyone knows this movie. And it's like, as I've been researching, it's like, uh, I, I guess I'm realizing more and more. It's like to everyone, it is not inherently a classic, um, but it's, what gets me with it is just the there is a I mean, like I said, it is a visual feast. Every frame of this movie, there is something great happening. The plot line, I mean, it is pretty simplistic. It is it is meant as a um, as sort of a, a, a it is meant as a fairy tale. It is not uh, made as something to, that is going to have like this complex, you know, study of the human psychology. It's like, no, we are going to tell a story that is the story, the struggle of light and dark, good and evil, uh, over and over and over again through human history. Um, but, you know, and that that is certainly there. And there is certainly a lot of fun stuff to take from that. And it's fun to see Tom Cruise in a role before he was like Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, like Top Gun would come out the next year. And from then on, it's like any movie that Tom Cruise is in, it is a Tom Cruise movie. 
Um, and here it's interesting to see the type of character he plays when he's, you know, when he doesn't, you know, when, when he can't throw his weight around on, on a set and not, you know, he's obviously done amazing things with that since then. So I'm not saying that is a bad thing, but it is, there are sides to him in this movie. We don't see in other stuff, but if you love this movie, you love it for the sheer audacity of the practical effects. Um, an actor I haven't mentioned yet is Tim Curry, who is the, you know, the, the, he is, he plays, his character is literally just named darkness. And he is, if you have not seen him, you need to Google it right now because it is the most impressive practical effects, like devil figure I've ever seen with these like three foot long horns that hang off of him. Um, and just this incredible makeup that just is utterly seamless. He disappears into it. T talk about someone who can still act, you know, and have all these prosthetics on. It is incredible. And it's not even the scariest thing about him in this movie. His voice, like it is haunting. And they actually, in a, in a very Jaws-like turn of events, there was a situation where the prosthetics like they stuck in a, in a bad way on his neck and it actually ripped off like a section of skin. It was very like Tim Curry was in a lot of pain. And so um, Ridley Scott had to shoot around him for a little bit. Cause obviously he wanted his actor to heal, wanted to take care of him. And what happened was they shot a couple scenes without the, 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 the makeup there. And it was just Tim Curry's voice. And they shot it in, you know, they shot several scenes in such a way that it was like, Oh, this is actually way more frightening when it's just Tim's voice. Um, yeah, yeah. Tim Curry is one of those very interesting actors who has done a lot of different things in his career. And, um, uh, I think this is probably, I mean, uh, to me, this is one of the best things he's, he's done, uh, in the entire thing. And, and, and to go further with this, and I didn't realize this until, uh, recently, but there is actually a director's cut of this movie that, according to both Tom Cruise and Ridley Scott is their preferred version of the movie. The actual, the American theatrical cut is about, it's maybe like 110 minutes long. It's under two hours. And I think that the director's cut is closer to two and a half. They wanted to make it a longer, more expansive film that explored a lot more themes. And the studio being the studio said, no, we need to keep this puppy under two hours. Um, but uh, since then, both both Ridley Scott and Tom Cruise have said, like, no, like, if you like this movie, go see the director's cut of it. I haven't I, I want to try and track that down at some point. Um, but, yeah, this is one of those movies uh, just the, the I, I should have led. I should have led with this part. Like when you think of, you know, the grim 80s fantasy movie, this is like the touchstone of that where it is it is moody. The, there's these, all these creatures that are really scary and frightening. I saw this at a way too young of age. Like I remember being like terrified by some of these critters that were running around. Um, but that, that just goes to show how effective all this stuff is. So uh great, great movie. Uh, definitely worth seeing it for the performances and for the faces that are uh, very, you know, very familiar in a unfamiliar context. Yeah. You know, I've only seen this film one time and um, when you brought it up, I had actually forgotten about it. <laughs> oh, um, and I, and I did go out and find the, uh, director's cut out there. So I'm going to watch it, oh, just nice. watch it. And I was watching a, uh, it was, it was his role for this Tim Curry because Tim Curry's range as an actor is unbelievable. When you think of, of, of legend, you think of blue, you think of home alone, but you know, it was this role that actually got him 
cast as Pennywise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Pennywise, I think he's, I think he's, obviously, I think he's very well known for Pennywise because that was such a different, you know, but people forget that he had played this part before he ever played Pennywise. And while Pennywise was creepy and had a creepy voice, I think what he did in Legend uh, was far creepier and and far more frightening, in my opinion. Um, so I, I I think that I think this film was um, I think it was ahead of its time, and I, I I wonder what they could do today if they had all the you know with CGI and everything like that. I, you know, so now you don't want to say, hey, let's remake a film because, but you know, I just, I just curious. It, it amazes me what they do in, in during that time with the practical effects and stuff like that. It's, it's absolutely incredible. So yeah, if folks go check this out, I'm going to actually rewatch this. It's on my list to rewatch. It's simple because you put it on your list. When we were- <laughs> I'm like, man, I have not seen that in years, and there's not a whole lot I remember about it other than Tim Curry. So, um, great movie. So, all right, my number four. I got to go with a number, another horror film, folks. And I got to go with it mainly because, once again, practical effects of the 80s made this film incredible. But here's the deal. It is another George Romero film, and that is Day of the Dead. So, remember, George Romero and his, uh, I think it was his producer on Night of the Living Dead, they kind of split off and went in the two different directions. So. You know, George Romero did Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and uh, the other guy, I'm drawing a blank on his name, he ended up doing Night of the Living Dead too. And, and you know, they, they were totally different films, but this is still a direct sequel to Dawn of the Dead, which was a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. And, of course, Night of the Living Dead too is also a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. So it's just, it, it's an interesting concept. But, you know, this was the, the third film, and basically it's just a group of survivors they're living in an underground bunker uh, and the, there's these doctors and, and they're obviously studying, uh, you know, the zombies, the dead, and they're trying to find a cure and they're being, you know, there's this military group that's basically, you know, pretty much there. Um, Captain Rhodes is the main antagonist and he's the head military guy. You can kind of see that, uh, isolation is sort of getting to him and things like that. But I think what, what, what in this film has been remade twice already. Um, the third, second time it was remade was, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, day, uh, day of the dead bloodline on Netflix, uh, about 2018 or 2019. It, it was, it was, it was okay. But, uh, you know, for me, the two, two things about this, this had uh, Greg, I'm going to butcher his name, Nick Torero. And all my horror fans are like yelling at me right now. Anyway, this guy is be, ended up becoming one of the best special effects uh, guy in horror, and one of the best writer and directors in horror. He is very well known for his work on The Walking Dead, uh, especially uh, with the episodes that introduced Negan as the main villain during that one season. And this was his first film to work on. Uh, under Romero and he worked on the practical effects. But um, one of the things I liked about this is uh, there was a, there's a hallway scene and, you know, 
there's these zombie hands that are coming out of the out of, out of the wall. And have you seen this? I, I I was literally just looking up to see where I could get a where I could watch this, and I like I I think that's the image that is on the uh, um, not it's not IMDb. What is it? The um, Just Watch app. I think yeah. that's yeah. All the wall hands coming out of the wall. So it's a dream sequence right there. <laughs> and yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's having a dream sequence. The ar- the zombie arms are coming out of the wall and the entire thing fell on her right in the middle of the shoot. And they had to rebuild the entire thing and end up, you know, reshooting the film. And so they had a, they had a very low budget and Romero was like, you know, he had, there was a lot of, problems with the production company they wanted to cut his budget in half um he didn't want to do that but you know a a practical effects a lot of it was they were building the effects in this guy's basement and then just bringing them to the set and you know they i think they were using things like pig's guts and stuff like that when they but here's the cool thing the extras they needed extras and they didn't have any money all right so they paid the extras $1. They gave them a hat that said, uh, I was a zombie in Day of the Dead. They got a ticket to the premiere. <laughs> and then um, they got a fake newspaper that basically said, you know, the dead have re- risen and stuff like that was the main headline. So it was like, you know, these three little collector's items. And people still have these. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's one guy out there and it says, he's got a collection of all the zombie stuff. And he's like, yeah, my dad was an uh, extra and, you know, day of the dead and things like that. I've always enjoyed Romero's work. If you go back and listen to my episode on zombies with, um, with Randy Strew, uh, th- this, this episode, this movie was on there. Dawn of the dead day. Of the dead, both phenomenal films. I think Romero was very, very ahead of his time, especially when it comes to sort of, I don't want to say, just looking at society and thinking about societal themes and things like that. I think that he picked up a lot, a lot of interpreted a lot of different things going on in society and put them into his films. And he always did that in a very, very well, good way. So day of the dead, um, I rewatched this probably about a month and a half ago mm-hmm. and it still sticks with me as, as one of the best zombie films out there. So I gotta go with day of the dead. All right. So I'm going to pick your brain here for a, for a second cuz I have only seen the original Night of the Living Dead um of I guess I guess I saw the remake of Day of the Dead. I think that was Zack Snyder directed it in 04. So I, uh over the over Romero's actually. I know a lot of people are going to shoot me for that. <laughs> so so one quick question. So is it necessary to see these movies in sequence if you go like Dawn, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day, or can you just like pick and choose, you know, no, because they're set in different locations. You know, uh, Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead is set with them all, and Day of the Dead is completely different group over here to the side in Florida in a bunker. You don't need to see them all. Night okay. of the Living Dead, you know, you can watch them in in any order. Okay. Okay. So not a lot of connective tissue there, much like zombies themselves. Gotcha. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. So what's your number four, uh, number three? Yeah. All right. So number three, I, I've, I've, my, my four and five were kind of 
big visual feasts and and you know high drama sorts of things this this movie for my number three is very spare it strips a lot of things down it is um very plain as a certain group of people would say uh my number three is witness uh this is a movie with harrison ford and uh kelly mcgillis which i did not realize was kelly mcgillis until i saw it and i re-watched it before we did this and i was like oh kelly mcgillis from top gun <laughs> like would not have pegged her as playing the the amish widow in this movie um but i i have always enjoyed i've always enjoyed harrison ford's um non-indie and star wars projects i think because because like his face and his voice is such a um such a hallmark of americana in a lot of ways it's like just any chance to see harrison ford acting in a movie you know up until a certain point i will say like you know somewhere around the 2000s you know i don't know i I, that's a longer conversation but I, i have not loved all of his performances of of late but in the 80s and 90s like just is just peak harrison ford and this is right there in the middle of it i don't i think this is right off the heels of of temple of doom um star wars is finished and it's like you really get to see him just act this is his only uh, academy award nomination for best actor which i think is a shame um and it's like you take away all the things that you think you love about the movies that Harrison Ford is in. You take away the speculative elements. You take away the squash buckling, the adventure, uh, and you just make him a cop in a movie where he is protecting a an Amish boy who witnessed a crime. And you just let that story unfold. And it is such a it is such a lean movie. Like it is like when I was talking about minimalist film earlier, this is the apex of minimalist film. Like it is the performances are all really toned, like not, not toned down. That could sound, that could sound like I'm like, I'm implying that it's boring. It's just, it is very, there is so much that is boil that is under the surface in this movie, but there is so much that's happening. The tension, the the romance, the suspense is like boiling because it just it's such a great well-written script and it's so well put together um there's so many great scenes where there is just not talking it is it is just you are just letting harrison ford and kelly mcgillis just act and express and emote and it is so captivating it is so great um you know i am i'm grateful for any of the harrison ford films that we get um, but it does make me wish a little bit that he'd had a chance to do more of these things. I think these are the things that he finds. I, I, I say finds present tense because I still think he finds these things much more interesting than Han Solo. I mean, he 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 wanted Han Solo to be killed off in Return of the Jedi, and you know they finally gave him his wish. You know, some thirty years later in The Force Awakens, um, I think he finds this is the stuff that he really enjoys. Um, performing in and it's it's just and it's it's such a great story too like it, it it's such a great simple story but it's like I, I don't know i'm i'm struggling for a metaphor for it jj but like if i if i just think of like in the way that like a sorry because it's the amish my brain is only coming up with wood analogies <laughs> also because harrison ford multiple times makes the joke about being a carpenter and i just can't i can't help but think of the story of him being a carpenter for george lucas while they were casting star wars and that's part of how he got the audition um 
but I just I picture like a perfectly carved wooden sphere and the way that it is just so simple but so so pleasing to look at and feel and touch and uh, it's it's such a great movie. I think anybody who is a fan of Harrison Ford needs to see it because it's kind of forgotten now in the midst, you know, the other things that have that have lasted longer. But this is like I said, this is, you know, Return of the Jedi was 83. Temple of Doom was 84. This is 85. It is right in the heyday of Harrison Ford, uh, just just at the height of his acting powers. And you get to see all the things that he does well. You get to see him you know kick some butt he you know he knocks some bad guys around you get to see him be funny um you know in a couple of different instances you get to see him you know do like an intense Harrison Ford stare at the camera and 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 you know he, uh, yeah there is just so much to love about this movie it is it is a movie to like put your phone down and just sit down and watch a master uh engage in his craft so superbly um yeah, yeah, great, great film. I I cannot say enough about it. I wish I could rank it higher, but it's, um, yeah, yeah. The other films we have are are just also great. So this is this is a a uh, one that is well worth revisiting. Yeah, this film's a little. It's kind of got that noir crime type uh, pacing to it in a way that I think uh, thinks works very very well. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because you said noir, and the first thing that came to mind was Amish noir, and I was like, I don't, I, I, like, I feel like I, I don't, don't know, I, I don't know. I did to go write some Amish noir. Man, man, I mean, you know, you've had Carrie Neats on this podcast, man. Get him <laughs> on it. <laughs> Empires in space, Amish noir in space. Maybe Carrie can do that for us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. This is, you know, because. You know, he did regarding Henry too, uh, which was another one of these type of films that was mm. sort of, uh, that modern love story with a lot of crime drama in it and things like that. Um, you know, a role he always got. You know, I, I always liked him in was the Jack Ryan roles, but mm -hmm. this, like you said, it, it's a very slow paced film. But I think it was one of those films that you know he had done Indiana Jones, he had done you know, the Star Wars films, this was him sort of saying, look, guys, I can act. And I'm going to go out here and put this movie out. You know, The Last Crusade obviously hadn't come out yet. And he, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible role. Like you said, it's the only Academy Award nomination he got. And it, it wasn't just him. This film was nominated for a, a couple of other awards too, but it was a very, very good film. Uh, but like you said, it's a different role. And I think this is one of those films that made a lot of people just like start to respect Harrison Ford just a little bit more as an actor because he's not just the adventure type role that we had been seeing. He's he's actually a serious actor. And, you know, so, yeah, it's a great film. I haven't seen it in, in many years. It's probably college the last time I saw it. But uh, it's it's really good. It's it's deserving to be up there. So I have a great film, man. Yeah. And just a couple other footnotes on it. Obviously, Danny Glover is also in this movie as one of oh, the yeah. cops. Um, but a like like I didn't notice it the first two times I saw this. And then someone pointed out that Vigo Mortensen is in this movie. And now like it like I can't not see him every scene he's in. He I don't think he has any speaking lines, but he's one of the background Amish that you see uh in there. And I, I don't know, I just I'm I'm just gonna gush a little bit more on it and just the fact that 
like we've talked sometimes about movies that like I feel like this is a movie that I mean it it already struggled to get made in the 80s, right? I mean it's very rural, it's very low key. You know, it was a struggle to get it made and it had Harrison Ford attached to it. I I don't see a way that you get this movie made today. You know, you you might you might get like a limited series made out of it, you know, like a you know, six episode or eight episode thing. I I'm not sure you could tell this story better by stretching it out over eight episodes. I think this is the perfect length to tell this story. And and I I love I, I don't want to say ambi- I don't want to say ambiguity with it, but I love that it explores these ideas of, you know, people from different worlds, you know, can they find love? You know, it explores yeah pacifism versus violence and 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 a a movie today it would come down really hard one way or the other right it would say like oh violence is not the way or it would say like you know or would say like oh religious orthodoxy only traps people or something like that and it really it presents both worlds it presents the up and you know the the pros and cons of of either way and it doesn't really leave you with like it doesn't it doesn't explain it to you i think that's another great thing that it does it lead it 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 brings these thoughts up and makes you think about them it doesn't tell you what to think about them um yeah i i could i could keep going i watched it this morning like (laughs) like that's when i watch my movies i I get up at 4 30 in the morning and if i if i don't have writing to do then that's when i'll carve through you know a good harrison ford movie like that so it's very fresh on my brain but uh great 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 movie um needs to get more needs to get more love than it does so um yeah let's hop on to your three here all right my number three i actually ended up switching my number three and two but Ooh. is actually mad max beyond thunderdale <laughs> I, I grew up with you know my father who is a huge post-apocalyptic fan he was a huge fan uh, you know, in the in the 80s, men's adventure stories, novels were like huge. And there was one called The Deathlands. And The Deathlands really reminded me of the Mad Max films. Uh, the Mad Max films, this was the third one in the series. And I think for me, it was just, you know, one thing I always liked about <laughs> the Mad Max films, especially, is Max really isn't really the protagonist in these stories. He's obviously the main character, but he just sorts of shows up and it's other people who have a goal. And he's always helping other people with their goals. Uh you see that in, in Mad Max Fury Road. Uh yeah, that's a huge part in it. The, the main character and the protagonists are, are aren't the same individual same characters. And I think I think that's true here because you know, Mad Max show uh, Max shows up and basically, um, you know, it's this place called oh, I'm drawing a blank, uh, Barter Town, basically. Barter Town, and it's ran by Auntie. And then there's a there's a lower level sort of I think it's just called the Underworld, and it's ran by Master, who is basically a dwarf, and he rides around on a giant named Blaster, who's his bodyguard, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, I think they're using like, you know, pig feces or something like that to create, uh, to refine some, some sort of resource. I can't remember if it's what, what, what it is, if it's energy or something, but basically, you know, anti wants max the kill, you know, you know, the, uh, the giant, 
which is the giant's name is uh master blaster or something like that yeah well it's 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 master blaster and master is the dwarf and blaster is the you know the 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 giant creature yeah. thing blasters the door is the uh is the giant and so you know <laughs> you know thunderdome the th- the thunderdome basically this is like a, the the hunger games and post-apocalyptic <laughs> you know it is you know what is it two men enter one man leaves and <laughs> It is. It is just. It's. It's got that punk rock type feel to it. As a kid watching this, and of course I didn't see it to like eighty seven or eighty eight. I was like ten or eleven when I watched it, and of course I watched it on cable television. It was one of those TNT type, you know, movies we were watching. But my dad was just glued to the TV because he loved the Mad Max films, and and of course they were the first post-apocalyptic type stories I ever got to watch. And it was, it, it just made you think about, there's some great themes in here, but you know, I was always drawn to Max's character simple because Max would always go out of his way to just help strangers in need and, and, and who needed help. He wasn't the most pleasant, uh, you know, character, main character, I guess you could say, but he uh he he always had that that duty uh where he just wrestled with morals and ethics and things like that. And I think that's what these films really sort of shown him anyway. So I gotta go with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, yeah. My dad loved this movie too. Um <clears throat> I, I I just <laughs> I, I don't know when he would have first I would imagine he saw it when it came out, but I remember it was one of those like that he would like reference a lot, like you know, you know two men enter one land, you know, one men leave. And uh, yeah, yeah. Just all of the things about it. And it was one that I, I specifically remember sitting down and watching this one with him. I actually, I, we, we were talking about, you know, with, with the, the uh, Romero movies, like, do you need to see them in order? This is one of those fun trilogies that I saw in reverse order. I saw, I, I saw Thunderdome sitting down with my dad. You know, I was, I might've been, I might've been early high school age or so. I finally saw Road Warrior when I was in college, and then I only a couple years ago actually saw the original Mad. Well, and then I saw Fury Road when it came out as well. Awesome movie. And then I only saw the original Mad Max. Like, I don't know it was, it, it was one of those things. It was like it was on Hulu and it was about to expire, and I was like, I've never seen the original Mad Max. I need to jump on it and and watch this. But yeah, it's just it's it is it is such a great dad movie. I feel like there is something about it. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, interesting seeing how they do a post-apocalyptic world, it, you know, the way that they do it in a time when, again, that wasn't a super popular genre. You know, now we've seen, you know, any number of dozens of, you know, post-apocalyptic settings and stuff like that. But, you know, how they do that, how they do that with practical effects, how they do that, I'm sure, with not an amazing budget. Um these Mad Max movies really are something because I remember Roger Ebert, he wrote a review about, it was about Thunderdome. And it was like, this isn't how sequels are supposed to work. Like they're not supposed to get bigger, but also get better and more impressive with each one. Like usually you have the really good opening act of the first movie. And then you try and, you know, each one kind of tries to be derivative and maybe you get a really solid, you know, see, you know, sequel you know a a number two movie but usually by number three the gas starts to run out it's like here it's like it's like 
it's like reverse de reverse depreciation where like each time you kind of rebuild it and make it even better and better and better and uh yeah no i i i, I agree with everything you said this is a a great fun movie you know if if you if you know what you are getting into with it it's a fun ride i think i think yeah. if you, i think I feel, i'm not sure what someone just like you well, I guess I kind of had that experience of just being dropped into, you know, the world of Mad Max. And it's like, all right, have fun. Ride this wave. <laughs> all right, man. What's your number two? All right. Number two, we are getting into some bona fide 80s classics here. Uh, I had yeah. just <laughs> I had to skip a John Hughes movie on my last list. I'm not doing it on this one because this, I think, is is peak John Hughes. And that is The Breakfast Club. Um, you know, this is about as close to like a, a Brat Pack Avengers movie as you can really get because you've got Molly Ringwald, you've got uh, um, Anthony Michael Hall. How did I blank on his name? <laughs> um, you know, you've got um, Emilio. And yeah, Emilio Estevez. Yeah, yeah, definitely. OK, I was I was. I, yeah, sorry, I was for a second i was like no it's martin sheen that's just because he looks so much like his dad in this movie like young emilio estevez looks cre like looks freakishly like martin sheen does in apocalypse now um ali sheedy who does us you know a bunch of amazing 80s movies you've just got so much this war and judd nelson i i honestly i don't know what else from the from like the brat pack era he's famous for i mainly knew him growing up from from the sitcom suddenly susan i don't know i don't know what else he's been in uh, besides that so my my apologies for my gap in my knowledge with that but you know this is one of those just like everyone who has been to high school is you know can identify with one of these people and realistically we can all identify with facets of all of them like you know we all have the sort of emotionally insecure side like anthony michael hall's character we have the sort of you know, every every guy especially has had moments of like the tough false bravado like you see from uh, from Emilio Estevez and from Judd Nelson in this. And we all, you know, and I, I don't know from the gal side, but, you know, I feel like a lot of women as they were growing up went through the, you know, you, you, you know, if you look at just the visuals of Ali Sheedy and Molly Ringwald, you have that duality of like, I hate, you know, wanting to look, you know, glammed up and dolled up and stuff like that and then also like i hate the world and i'm just gonna sit here and wear black all day <laughs> like it's um and also just the understanding of you know the way that you see the grown-ups in this movie which i'm not normally a fan of the trope of oh just parents don't understand grown-ups don't understand it's like well kids are dumb too but there is an interesting there is an interesting moment that I think every person goes through as they're growing up when you realize like, oh, like the grownups are just people like yeah. they have their own crud that they're dealing with um, and and they have their own problems and their own faults. And some, you know, it's, at one point or another, sooner or later, there's this realization. I just the, the image that is embedded in my brain is is like the one teacher. I can't I cannot remember his name. Uh, but he's the one who's like staring at Judd Nelson and just looking like, come on, hit me, hit me, hit me. And it, it's like, what is happening right now? And this is a guy who is clearly suppressed and work and not worked through some pretty intense stuff. And he's taking it out on these kids here. Um, yeah. Just the, the cathartic moments that happen in this, in this as, you know, these group of kids from all these different walks of life 
they find commonality, they find common ground and, and figuring out what they have in common more and they share and they kind of heal all together. It's really, it's, you know, in the way of a good John Hughes movie, it is irreverent at times. It is heartfelt at times. It is goofy at times. It is depressing at times. It, he finds such a good way to mix all these great things together. Um, I mean, like I said, I don't, you know, I don't think that, you know, I guess you could say you, you could make the argument about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but it's like, I don't know that John Hughes, I don't know that the John Hughes, uh, I, I'm, I'm realizing I'm stepping, maybe uh, overstepping there. I'm not 100% certain in my brain if John Hughes directed Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but I don't think John Hughes did it better in terms of a written and directed by project than he did with this one. Yeah, I was actually looking this up just now because I wanted to confirm it. Uh, you know, this had a $1 million budget. All right. This was filmed in uh, Maine North High School in Illinois. Uh, I forget the name of the town, Illinois. But this is the same high school that they used for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> Hold on. To save money, they shot this, this concurrently. Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Breakfast Club. They shot them at the same time. Because they only had the high school for a certain period of time. So they were shooting. And so when you watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and this is what I was, is, was looking at the confirm, you will actually see some of the set crews uh, in, in for the Breakfast Club in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So they shot these at the exact same time. But, you know, th this isn't my favorite John Hughes film. The Great Outdoors is, is definitely my favorite uh john hughes film uh but um you know one of the things that uh i liked about this film and i've heard that there was a director's cut but nobody's ever seen it like his <laughs> widow um mentioned that there was a director's cut but this film just deals with the struggle of what it means to be a teenager mm. and that struggle is just as true today as it it was in 80. In fact, I think the struggle, the themes that this talks about, and I made a list, you know, you know, it's the struggle to be understood as a teenager. Hello, if, if, if Instagram and Snapchat and social media and all that stuff isn't putting that out there even greater today, I don't know what else. I'm, this is, this talks about peer pressure. It talks about stereotyping. And here's the biggest one. The one that never changed. Parental expectations that a teenager feels they have to live up to. Mm -hmm. And I think that John Hughes, yeah, we talk about this being the Brat Pat, but you know, you have Emilio Estevez's character, and you know, he is trying so hard to be impressive with his to impress his dad. You have the kid that's just he's he's a drug addict or whatever and his home life stinks and he doesn't want to talk about it you have the weird girl that just kind of keeps quiet i mean this it hits every single one and at the end of the day they realize they're all a lot more alike than they are different and i think what that does is that just shows the show that we all may come from different backgrounds this this film in my opinion I was going to put it on my list if you didn't take it. Obviously, you took it, so I'm excited that we got to discuss it. I mean, it's a $1 million budget, and we're still talking about it today. That is a film, I think, that stands the test of time without question. 
It's the Breakfast Club. I rewatched it about I think it was February. I rewatched it, and it just it holds up just as much today. And I think it's I think it's phenomenal to be on this list, man. So yeah, great choice. Yep. All right, man. We'll we'll uh, we'll square up here. What's your what's your number number dose? Okay, my number dose. I have to go with another Tim Curry one, a different role than Legend, obviously. But I gotta go with Clue, man. This film. This it was written by John Landis, okay, who he wrote a lot of great films. He wrote Blues Brothers, he wrote Animal House, American Werewolf in London, and he also wrote Thriller. All right. The guy, it was he wrote a great script. But when I think of games, like board games being turned into movies, I think this film nailed it in so many ways. Because the entire point of clue was okay, who did it? Where did they do it at? And what weapon did they do it at? And, you know, we all have seen it in, like, um, you know, obviously home. So we see the three endings. But when they released it in theaters, each theater was getting a different ending. So some people would go to this theater and they'd find out, oh, wait a minute. I got a different ending than you got because you went to this theater. And then so somebody and they did it in a way to try and get people to keep going back and rewatching it just so they could see the the other ending. But the problem was it 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 didn't do that well in the box office. It was like a 15 million dollar budget. I don't even think it met its budget at the box office. It didn't really become popular until it got started getting out there on home television and stuff like that, cable TV and things. But I I still think it's a great movie. We actually introduced our kids to it not too long ago just uh you know it was a fun fun friday night film you know because we were playing clue and you know we're like hey you gotta watch the clue movie and you know we all see the three endings but man if i had grown up then and i've been like a teenager or an adult i would have totally been going to every theater i could to find a different ending because that's just a dorky i am about that but i gotta go with clue i think this was a great role for tim curry I think this is more the role we're used to, sort of that comedic type role. But uh, there's something about this. Obviously, you know, Ryan Johnson says this was a big inspiration for him when he wrote Knives Out, um, number one. I'm I'm more partial to one than I am two. I like two, but I'm still more partial to one. Uh, But, you know, I think Clue is one of those that just sticks with people. So I got to go with Clue, man. Oh yeah. No, this is, I I think I've talked about comedies before and like part one of the um, metrics with which I grade a comedy is its quotability and holy cow, is this a quotable movie? <laughs> like, it, yeah. It's one of those, like, as soon as you've like, like seen it, you just, they're, they're just ingrained in your heads. Like the one where they're like counting the number of shots or, you know, yo, no meaning yes, no, no meaning no. And the, it, flames, flames, on the side of my <laughs> and the performances are so unhinged like it in in a way that like it's not just utter madness where it's like random but it's like there there's this rigid structure that you're following because you're following the mechanics of the game you're following the steps of like a who done it story and then you just have these moments of utter madness as people are just losing their minds it is uh, yeah it is one of the best comedies I I think I've ever seen. I think if I had to rate like personal favorite comedies, easily top five, 
Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim Curry is pitch perfect with this where he gets to play. He gets to put off his creeper vibes. Um, I mean that in the most positive of ways. Um, and yet he's still charming and witty and funny. Like this is, I, I think this is really peak Tim Curry in a lot. Uh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was, I was saying this about Harrison Ford earlier, how you see him using all of his skills and witness. You see Tim Curry doing all the great Tim Curry things in this movie. Cause you see him be villainous. You see him being like deceptively charming. You see him being, you know, side-handed and you see him being funny and, you know, witty and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So no, great, great film. Um, yeah, yeah, superb. Yeah, I love it. I it's one of those I can rewatch. So, all right, man, let's get to because we're starting to run out of time. Let's get yep, yep. next two, and we are down to number one movies for us in 1985. What is yours, dude? All right, my number one. I mean, it, in so many ways, it's just the perfect quintessential 80s movie. It is Back to the Future. Um, this is one of those movies that is just, uh, uh, <laughs> to, to turn a phrase here, it is timeless. Uh, yep. you know, it is one of the hallmarks of the eighties. It does. I was thinking about this cause I always have regarded this as like the quintessential eighties movie. And it's like, well, what is it? Cause it doesn't even spend a majority of the runtime in the eighties. It's mostly in the fifties. And I think it's the fact that you have a coming of age story, which is obviously a big part of 80s pop culture in the movies you have speculative you know you have you have time travel you have science fiction which again is something that is really you know like that wave is starting to crest following the the success of star wars um you've got some amazing stars this is this is michael j fox's other big hit of this year you know along with teen wolf um you have performances that like you know that last um you know that that stand the test of time i mean doc brown is it was an immediately iconic character that like everyone could identify with everybody you know could understand what this character is about and the script is just flawless that is this is one of those screenplays that people use um as a as a like like this is how you you this is how you write a really perfect movie where everything connects back to itself all the wheels are turning everything is explained everything makes sense um, you know, the, you know, everything that you set up is paid off later on. Um, and it's just, it is so perfect. It hits on all the right notes. Uh, I mean, it, yeah, it is an instant classic and it's just so much fun that like, I, I really feel like you could show this to audiences today who, you know, if there had not been someone who had seen it before and, you know, like the things that, you know, there may be special effects that are, that are more or less dated, but, you know everything else that is everything that is in it is working like so superbly um yeah 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 it's one of those films i absolutely think um you know it it, it talks to us about the consequences of messing with the past it talks to us about you know and what i think makes it 80s is because you know we were growing up in a period that you know there was a lot of unknowns but people were starting to actually question you know what if i had done this differently back then what if, you know in back in the you know that that greatest generation group didn't care about that stuff they were just lucky to get they were just happy to get out of the war alive and have a career the the boomers <laughs> during this time and i won't put pressure on boomers but the reality is boomers and the gen xers 
we were starting to question. Yeah, they they questioned the. They were the first generation to really question the past in a way, and so I think it it, it sort of touched on that that aspect of society. But like you said, it, it allowed you to suspend disbelief too. That was another thing because when you think about Doc Brown and his ideas of time travel and how it all works and all this stuff, there's a lot of holes you could probably poke into his concept of time travel, but you suspended that disbelief and continued to just go with it because the script was so well structured and it hit the beats perfectly every stinking time. And it's one of those that, like you said, when you study screenwriting, when you study storytelling, you go back to this film because it's, it is a coming of age story, but it's a coming of age stories that goes backwards in order to come forwards. And I think that's, uh, I think that's absolutely great. There's so many quotable lines in this. Um, it's one of those movies that, you know, you can keep coming back to and you feel like you're just sitting down with an old friend. And like I said, it's one of those that is on my list to introduce my kids to. We have not done that yet. Uh, but when I when I we should do an episode sometime, <laughs> the 10 movies we want our kids to watch, you know, and just, you know, th- these are the things they need to watch one day. <clears throat> of course, we'll do that after the 1980 series, which <laughs> we've been doing that for like nine months now. We're only halfway through the eighties, but it's a, it's a great film. It's, it was, it's would go on both of our list and so many other people's lists because I mean, it's Michael J. Fox. It's his breakout year. Uh, great film, man. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I had, I had a, I had my one out there. Let's, let's throw it. your number one, share it with the world. All right, here we go. Hey, you guys. (laughs) Come on, man. You got to go with Goonies. Goonies is, to me, what it means to be a kid in the 80s. Absolutely. There are some of those movies that just show what it means to be a little kid in the 80s. E.T. did it. But I think Goonies really did it, too. This is also sort of that coming-of-age story. I mean, it's a basic plot. They're about to lose their home. Uh, they're, it's being bought out by these rich, entitled people. And they go on an adventure to look for One-Eyed Willie's gold. And that's basically the story. In the process, they're being pursued by this family that <clears throat> is trying to, uh, that's doing some bad things. They've committed crime. They've killed an FBI agent. I mean, it is just one of those films that just what it means to go on an adventure with your friends. And as an 80s kid, we would do this. We'd just get out and head out. And the rule was be home by the time the streetlights came on. That was our rule. I mean, I can't imagine letting my kids go out and just say, hey, be home by the time the streetlight comes on. You know, but that's how we did it as a kid. And that was grandma's rule. But this film was written by Chris Columbus, mm-hmm. who also wrote uh, Home Alone. Um, I have a list here, actually. He directed <laughs> directed the first two Home Alone movies, the first two Harry Potter movies. Yes, uh, which are like, yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm a huge Chris Columbus fan, so yeah, okay. yeah. Ricky Jackson, Pixels. He did. Um, oh, Mrs. Doubtfire too. Oh, that is one of his. I forgot about that. Yeah. Fire. So, you know, Chris Columbus, John Hughes, those guys, man, they were always hitting it out of the park. But yeah, the first two Harry Potter films were, were done by him as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, this film had, I mean, it had a young Sean Austin. All right. I mean, it had a young Josh Brolin. This is long before Thanos, man. It had a, uh, you know, Corey Feldman and K. Hu Kwan. Did I say that right? Who, by the way, just won his first Oscar, man. Oh, man. I mean, short round is in this film as Data. Two of the most iconic kid roles this guy played. And today, this year, he is winning an Academy Award. Folks, if that doesn't tell you the stick with what you love, that that right there is an inspirational story, in my opinion. But, I mean, Goonies, to me, this is what it means to be an 80s kid. And and that's the reason I love it. It was shot on location in, in Oregon. Um there was obviously some scenes that were shot. I think the scenes with one eye Willie ship and you know, the water slide scene and all that stuff. I think that was shot on in, in, in Hollywood, but on one of the big stages, but for the most part, I mean, it, it was shot right there on location. It's a great film. And, uh, I, I mean, it's one of those, I could rewatch it over and over and over and over and never grow. It's like back to the future. You just never get tired of watching this. So I got to go with uh, Goonies. I think it's one of the best 80s, 1985 films. Yeah, and- yeah. Yeah, no, I'll, 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 I'll keep my, I'll keep my, my points brief on this. Cause I know we're bumping up against the clock here, but yeah, this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a perfect, like, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think this movie ever expires in your mind because you either love it because you're watching it and you're a kid or you watch it and you love remembering what it was like to be a kid. I watched this movie in my, my best, one of my best friend uh, growing up's basement. And we just watched it and just laughed our heads off at every part of this. Um, yeah. There's, there's so much power that's going into this movie that creates for this really wholesome, innocent. I love the, su- the micro genre of kids on bikes. That's just, I, you know, that's Harry. That's, that's, yeah, that that's this movie. That's ET. That's you know, just anytime when kids are off going on an adventure, you know, Stand by Me, that sort of a thing. Oh. Yeah, you've got Chris Columbus writing. You've got Richard Donner directing. Uh, I believe Steven Spielberg was a producer on this. There's just there's so much that's working to make a great, fun, innocent adventure. And yeah, the, it's it's so great. I this is again, this is definitely one of them. Um, um, you know, excepting for a couple of cuss words, it's definitely on the list of movies I want to, I want to share with my son when he's old enough. Well, and it's, it's instantly quotable. I mean, mm-hmm. it's their time up there. It's our time down here. You know, I mean, you got the, Hey, you guys, you got pinchers of pal. <laughs> <laughs> it's my mom's favorite piece. And you know, <laughs> do the truffle shuffle. I mean, you know, it's, it's. I mean, there's so many lines in this film that you just step back and think of and just say, man, I know what that line is from. It's from Goonies. And, you know, I just I think it's 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 a great film. And like you said, it just other than a few cuss words here and there, it's one of those films that everybody our age wants their kids end up seeing. Like my my grandmother wanted me to watch the film she grew up watching that she loved the film like The Wizard of Oz or you know a lot of the John Wayne westerns and stuff like that or To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, then there's the films we want our kids to grow up watching and it's, you know, Goonies and it's Back to the Future and it's Indiana Jones and those stuff. So I got I got to give it up Goonies, uh, Back to the Future. Both of them, number ones, in my opinion. So, 
All right, Andrew, it has been great having you back on the show again. Folks, we're going to leave a link to Andrew's uh, short audio story that has been a final, that is now a finalist for the Realm Awards. Go check that out and listen to it. Uh, you won't be sorry. It's uh, what's uh, what's his name that narrated that? What's Magnus that? Magnus Carlson? I was actually just thinking. I I realized I did not give him a proper shout out at the at the top of the show. But Magnus is such a great voice voice artist. Like anything you listen to on the Havoc Story podcast is great. And yeah, yeah, his yeah. voice is a powerful force. And Emily Hendricks just uh, did her Kickstarter for her new book that's coming out. That yeah, is- yeah. She raised over $10,000, man. Unbelievable. And he is going to be one of the two narrators on that as well. So, uh, folks, go check that out. We'll leave that link in the show notes. Hey, everybody, this has been Andrew and JJ, and this has been Geeky Dads. Talk about geeky things, folks. That is a wrap.